Have you ever heard someone say, he or she needs a good priest? You ever heard that phrase? That person needs a good priest. It's often said in a joking way about someone who's in a bad way, someone who's having serious problems and uh, may even be past the point of professional help. Well, we said last week that that statement, though oftentimes used in a, a humorous and even sarcastic way, is in fact a true statement that does not just apply to certain people in certain situations, but it applies to everyone. The author of Hebrews makes it very clear in the first half of this book that we are in need of a priest. You, me, all of us are in need of a good priest. And in the last section of Hebrews 4, the first section of Hebrews 5, the author of Hebrews lets us know that God has provided what we need in Jesus. That's the main point of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 through Hebrews chapter 5, verse 10. And that is a point that the author of Hebrews makes again and again. In fact, the priesthood of Jesus is really at the heart of Hebrews. And we're going to see that as we continue on. Now, like I said last week, some of you may be scratching your heads on why Jesus, being our great high priest, should be good news and motivating to us. I mean, let's be honest. Unless you come from a Catholic background, you've never really thought about your need for a priest all that often, right? And if you are from a Catholic background, that is not the context of Hebrews, all right? So you need to be informed as well. But, but many of us, if we're honest, we, we don't really think about our need of a priest all that often. But God is clear in His Word that we do, in fact, need one in His Word tells us that we have all fallen short. We are sinners set against Him. We're in desperate need of someone to stand up and stand out and stand for us and represent us before God. One who can offer up sacrifice for sin, to cover our sin so that we can be forgiven by God and made right with Him. And the author of Hebrews reminds us of the fact that there is one who has been appointed by God to be that and do that for us. And that person is, in fact, His Son, the Lord Jesus. Jesus was sent by the Father, and He came willingly, became one of us. He lived for us the perfect life we can never live. He lived a sinless life, a life in perfect fellowship with the Father for us, and He has acted as our priest. He has offered up the perfect sacrifice for us on our behalf to cover our sins, and that sacrifice was Himself. He laid His own life down for us, and He was raised for us, and we said last week, He has passed through the heavens for us. Jesus didn't pass through an earthly physical temple in and through an earthly physical veil into an earthly and physical holy of holies like the earthly and physical priest did. He has passed through the heavens for us to take care of our sin. 
said last week that the high priest was authorized to go into the Holy of Holies one time a year. He had to get in and get out quickly. And the author of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus is the only one who has entered into the heavens for us into God's throne room. Why? Because he is God's great high priest and God's great son, the one who sits at the right hand of the Father. He is able to pass through the heavens for us into God's heavenly temple. He is able to do that for us because of who he is, because he is God's son. And we're told that he is there before the Father forever as the worthy lamb who was slain. John tells us in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, that between the throne and the four living creatures, he saw the Lamb standing as though it had been slain. Amen? That's Jesus, our priest, standing before God for us. Christ is before the Father as the Lamb who was slain, and through him and only through him, through his person and work, do we have access to God. By faith alone, in Christ alone, because of his person and work alone, we have access through faith in Christ to God's throne of grace. And in him, we are secure forever. Through his blood, we are told he has secured for us an eternal redemption. We're told that in Hebrews 9. Jesus is our great high priest. That's what we talked about last week. And the author of Hebrews is going to continue with this focus in our text this morning. If you have your Bibles and are not there yet, turn to Hebrews chapter 5. We're continuing our series through the book of Hebrews entitled, Jesus is Greater. And today we are going to continue to see this emphasis by the author of Hebrews as Jesus is supreme. That's, that's his theme he's going to continue with. He is supreme over priests. He is our great high priest, greater than all other priests. And he is using that truth as a form of motivation for the believers in his day and for us today, believers, on why we should remain committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 1 through 10 of Hebrews 5, the author of Hebrews is going to basically do two things. One, he is going to give the qualifications for the high priest, and then he is going to show how Jesus meets and exceeds those qualifications. Pretty cool, right? Very simple to follow. That's what he's doing. Now, why does he do this? Why take this approach? Well, remember last week, the end of Hebrews 4, the writer made it known that Jesus is our great high priest. And I'm sure he is anticipating certain Jews, maybe in his audience or in the surrounding area, objecting to that, saying, or, or questioning that, maybe not objecting, maybe that's too strong a term, but, but maybe questioning, saying, hold on a minute. There, there are certain specific qualifications to be a high priest. Not just anyone can take that title. How does Jesus meet those qualifications? It's as if the writer of Hebrews is anticipating those questions, or maybe it already heard some of that questioning. So he takes a moment to examine these qualifications and how Jesus meets those qualifications. In the first four verses, Hebrews 5, the author gives three qualifications to be a high priest 
Then we're going to look at those, and then we're going to look at verses 5 through 10, where he goes back over those qualifications and applies them to Jesus, shows how Jesus meets and exceeds those qualifications. First, notice the qualifications for high priest. The first was this. The high priest was appointed by God from men. Look at verse 1 and verse 4. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Now skip down to verse 4. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Talked about this a bit last week. But with these two verses, we get a little insight into how one became the high priest. In that day, someone did not just decide, you know what, I think I'll become a priest, go to college, major in priestiology, graduate and apply for the position. That's not the way it worked back then. There were requirements for one to be high priest. One, they had to be a man. Two, they had to be called by God through the line of Levi, the tribe of Levi, through the household of Aaron. High priests were chosen by God from men to act on man's behalf in relation to God. Now, let's take a moment just to break these down. First, he had to be a man. Why? Simple, to represent mankind. All right? God has always appointed men to represent mankind. Y'all remember who our first representative was, right? Adam. You remember what kind of job he did, right? He's the reason for the priests. <laughs> All right? So, and, and we are as well, and they were as well. But, yeah, it's the reason we have a high priest, and, and of course, we're to blame. They, they had to stand before God on behalf of their people, offering sacrifices to him because of Adam's failure and because of their own failure. So the high priest had to be a man to represent mankind. Two, they had to be called by God, chosen by him from among men. And to hammer this point home, the writer of Hebrews reminds those in his audience that even Aaron, the first priest, was called by God, and the high priest after him in the household of Aaron are called in Aaron as well, right? But they are, they are called. Listen to Exodus 28, verse 1. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, it's God speaking to Moses, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron was chosen to be a high priest, and the author of Hebrews reminds them of this to make the point that if this was a qualification that was applied to Aaron, the head of the Levitical priesthood, then it applied to all priests. Now, the Jews in this day knew this, and they knew if anyone tried to assume the role of priest, having not been appointed by God, they'd be in a world of trouble. Being in the line of Levi, the tribe of Levi, the household of Aaron. Well, what about Jesus? Was he from the tribe of Levi? Is he from the household of Aaron? No. He was from the tribe of Judah, the household of David. He was not from the tribe of priests. He was from the tribe of kings. With that in mind, should he have been considered a priest? Well, the answer is yes. Say yes. All right. The Bible says yes. 
and we're going to talk about why that's the case in just a moment. But first things first, the writer here just wants us to understand the qualifications for a high priest. He had to be appointed by God from men. Second, the high priest was to sympathize with God's people. He had to relate to them and sympathize with them. Look at verse 2. He can deal gently, this is a high priest, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. The best kind of representative, the person you want to stand on your behalf is one who can relate to you, right? God's appointed priest could sympathize with those they ministered to. Why? They knew how to deal gently with the, with the ignorant and the wayward because they were called out and set apart by God from the ignorant and the wayward, all right? They were beset with weakness. And boy, what a good mentality to keep in mind when we serve, right? Be gentle with the ignorant and the wayward because you yourself and myself, me, were beset with weakness, aren't we? It's a good mentality to have. But they were sympathetic to the weak because they too were weak. So a qualification for a high priest is that he had to be one who's completely involved with the human situation. Not one removed from men, but one who lived in their midst. One who understand their weakness and their need for forgiveness. The next qualification for a high priest is that they had to offer sacrifices to God on behalf of his people. The high priest offered sacrifices to God on behalf of his people. Look at verse 1 again and verse 3. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Verse 3. Because of this, because he's been chosen by God from men, because he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward because he is weak, because of that, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sin. The high priest had to offer sacrifice for his own sin first, right? Because he was, he was weak and wayward. Just as he does for those of the people. So in addition to being chosen by God from men and being able to relate and sympathize with men, God's appointed priest had a job to do. They had to offer gifts and sacrifices to God for their own sin and for the sins of the people. Now, this is just a little extra side note here. Notice it says gifts and sacrifices. This, I believe, the author here is speaking in general terms of all the different tasks of the priests, okay? In this day, people brought the priests a variety of gifts and sacrifices that they were to offer up to God for different reasons. For example, there were burnt offerings that were offered up to demonstrate one's commitment to God. There was a fellowship offering which was offered to show one's thankfulness for fellowship with God. Guilt offerings were, were offered for unintentional sins against another and sin offerings were offered for sin. They also had grain offerings that were offered voluntarily, offered to accompany the other sacrifices, okay? So I believe all the different tasks of the priest are in view here, but the primary 
primary focus, because it's mentioned twice in verse 1 and verse 3, is on the priest providing a sacrifice for sin, for his own sin and for the sin of the people. With me? So these are the, the qualifications for the high priest. Now let's take a moment to look at how Jesus meets and exceeds these qualifications. Here's the first way. The first way Jesus meets and exceeds the qualifications is by being our appointed priest forever. Jesus is God the Son who is our appointed priest forever. Look at verse, verses 5 and 6 and verse 10. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I've begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 10, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now remember, what is said here is in connection with the first point at the beginning of this passage. The author is showing why Jesus is to be considered our great high priest. And he begins by saying that one of the qualifications for being a high priest is that one has to be chosen by God from men. The author of Hebrews here is showing us that Christ himself was appointed by God the Father from men. We're told that Christ did not exalt himself as a high priest, but he was appointed by God, by the Father. Notice he says, the same one who said, you are my son, that's taken from Psalm 2-7, but of course we know God repeated those words throughout Christ's earthly ministry at his baptism and at his transfiguration. The author of Hebrews is saying here, the same one who said, you are my son, also said, you are a priest forever. That phrase is taken from Psalm 110, verse 4. The author of Hebrews is once again taking the Old Testament and he is applying what's taught in the Old Testament to Jesus. And of course, God reaffirms these truths in the New Testament and through the, the, the gospel accounts and in the writers of the New Testament through the author of Hebrews here to make the point that Jesus is God's son who has been appointed, designated by the Father to be a priest forever. Now, when did God appoint Jesus to be priest? Well, we know he had to become a man to become our priest, right? Because the priest had to be a man to stand for man before God. But he has always existed as the second person of the Trinity. Scripture is clear on that from everlasting to everlasting. God is the Son forever. And we also learn when we, when we study Scripture that there was this covenant between the Godhead, a covenant of redemption between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit about this great work of salvation. And that's always been in place. That's why you have these messianic prophecies given all throughout 
the Old Testament recorded for us. It has always been the divine plan between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for Christ to come and become one of us and function as our great high priest. That's always been the plan. Yet there was a time in history when God the Son stepped out of eternity and into history, taking on flesh to become, to be appointed as our high priest, the one appointed by the Father. He was born, he lived among God's people. Because the high priest was one chosen by God from men, Jesus became one of us. He became a man to function in this way as our high priest. And notice again the humility of Jesus. We see this highlighted throughout the New Testament. We're told by Paul in Philippians 2 that Jesus humbled himself by becoming one of us. Though he was equal with God the Father, God the Son, Paul says in Philippians 2, he emptied himself by becoming a man. And we're also told here he did not exalt himself as a high priest. God did that for him. Verse 5 again, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by God. We see Christ's humility on display here in Hebrews 5. And we see that Christ is God's appointed priest forever. Now, earlier, I mentioned an issue with that among the Jews, with Jesus, when it came to him being a priest because of the Levitical priesthood. You see, the issue is Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. He's not from the household of Aaron. He's from the tribe of Judah, from the tribe of kings, from the household of David. Priests in the Old Testament were all descendants of Levi, the Jewish priests. They were descendants of Aaron. Well, notice the author of Hebrews addresses this as well. He says at the end of verse 5 and in verse 10 that Jesus is a high priest from another order. Not the order of Aaron, but the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is not a priest after Aaron, but after Melchizedek. Now, who on earth is Melchizedek? probably asking that question right it's very interesting character in scripture we're going to talk about Melchizedek a lot in Hebrews so I'm going to save some for the sake of time so we can move through this text I'll mention a few things about him but I'm going to mention more about him in Hebrews chapter 7 I actually wrote a paper on him in seminary but I know more about him now having studied through the book of Hebrews uh, it, you learn you know just him in context there a lot more about him so I'll just say a few things about him, then we'll move on. He's first mentioned in Genesis. He's an obscure character who visits Abram before Abram's Abraham, before the Jewish people. We are told that Melchizedek was the king of Salem, which many believe this to be Jerusalem at this time. Salem's shortened form of Jerusalem. So the king of Jerusalem before the Jewish people. How about that? And we're told in Genesis that he was a priest of the Most High God. So he's a king and he's a priest and the king of Jerusalem. Are you following me? Okay. He visits Abram and blesses Abram. And we're told that Abram pays him an offering, a tenth from the spoils of war. What war? We'll talk about that in Hebrews 7. Come back, okay? Now, we don't know anything about Melchizedek's family, his upbringing. Nothing like that. Some think he's some sort of supernatural character in Scripture, but I believe he was a man. 
And I'll explain that more in Hebrews 7, but I will say this. Think about it. He's a priest. What did we just say about priests? They needed to be a man to represent mankind. All right? So, so he's, he's a man, king priest, who served the one true God, who is spoken of in an obscure way for a reason. I believe God led his writers to write what they do about this man for the purpose of Melchizedek serving as a type of Christ. Now, what does that mean? doesn't mean he's on par with Jesus. That just means what we're told about Melchizedek mirrors the Lord Jesus. Think about it. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. Sound familiar? King of righteousness. He is also the king of Salem, Jerusalem's king. Salem is the same root word as the Hebrew word for peace. So he's the king of Jerusalem, he's the king of righteousness, and he's the king of peace. Are you following me? All right? We don't know about his beginning or end. Jesus is without beginning and end. He is from everlasting to everlasting, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He is our forever king and forever priest. Melchizedek is in a superior position to the patriarch, the first father, Abraham. Right? Is Jesus superior to Abraham? Yeah, he's making that point here. He's king and priest, just like Jesus. Aaron, though he was a priest, was not a king. David, though he was a king, was not a priest. Jesus is both. Melchizedek is both. Melchizedek's priesthood, of, of course, precedes that of Levi and of Aaron because it, it, he's there before those guys are in place, right? His priesthood is. So he is in position and authority over Abraham, over the entire Levitical order of priests. And the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is like Melchizedek. You with me? He's in that order. He is like Melchizedek, making the point simply that Jesus is superior to Aaron. He's superior to all the priests. He's superior to Levi. He's superior to Abraham. Notice the author is continuing with this theme, that Jesus is greater. He's God's greatest form of revelation, greater than angels, greater than Moses, greater than Abraham, greater than Levi, greater than Aaron. Do I need to go on? He's greater than everyone and everything. That's the point. And we see here Jesus, of course, meets the requirements for priest. He meets these qualifications. He is appointed, designated by God, and because he became one of us, he is appointed for us, from us. But Jesus does more than simply meet these qualifications. He exceeds it. We talked about this last week. He is superior to every other high priest because he is God's son. Though high priests held a supreme position, were granted special access into a sacred part of God's temple here on earth, they did not have the kind of access that Jesus has as a son. They did not share his authority and his title. No high priest was ever able to take upon himself the title of son of God. At best, Priests were servants of God and temporary mediators between God and men, but nothing like Jesus. Jesus is God's son and our appointed priest 
forever. Here's the next qualification that Jesus meets as our great high priest. We said a moment ago that the reason high priests were chosen by God from men is so that they could sympathize with God's people. Get this, Jesus became one of us to sympathize with us and here's how he exceeds it, suffer for us. Remember we said last week in Hebrews 4, 15, that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We said that Jesus has come down to us to identify with us, to relate to us. He has come and he has identified with us so that we could identify with him. He was tempted like we are tempted. Jesus came to live among the ignorant and the wayward and the weak and was tempted just like we are. That's what makes him our great high priest. He has not remained removed from us. He has not saved us from afar. He has saved us by coming near, by becoming one of us. And he came and he was tempted like we are. He knows about where we've been. He knows about what you're going through. He knows about the temptations of this world and he knows about them to a greater degree than you or me because he never gave in. We always give in. And when we give in, temptation becomes a little less, right? He was tempted continuously and he never gave in. Jesus got down off of his throne, came down to us. He experienced what we experienced. So when you face hard times, get this, you can know that Jesus did too, and you can go through that with him. Jesus knows what it's like to be in your shoes. You know why? Because he's been in your shoes. He's been in your shoes. He can sympathize with us, and he can give us real help. It's what he's done for us. In addition to that, Jesus also suffered for us. This is where Jesus succeeds the other priests. He not only came to identify with us and relate to us, he suffered on our behalf. Look at verses 7 and 8. In the days of his flesh, that is, during his earthly ministry, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered we know from the gospels and a portion of the epistles that jesus suffered in life and in death he experienced the the frustrations and the hurts that come from living in a broken fallen sin-stained world and he experienced physical pain and spiritual pain at calvary as well he was put to death by the hands of lawless men godless men but he was also crushed by god for us he became sin he he endured god's wrath for us so that he might save us from sin death and the wrath of god that's romans 5 9 paul says we're saved by jesus from the wrath of god that's what he says and the reason he's able to do that is because jesus endured god's wrath for us so he suffered in life and in death and in this passage in hebrews 5 it seems as if the author of Hebrews is describing that time when Christ suffered in Gethsemane before his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. That's what many believe is in view here. Jesus suffered there before being tried, beaten, and crucified. And the reason he suffered is because he knew what awaited him at 
Calvary. And folks, it was not the physical death, though painful, that caused him deep anguish in the garden. It was thinking about drinking from the cup of God's divine wrath. That's what led him to say, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He truly suffered there in Gethsemane. The author of Hebrews says, Jesus with loud cries and tears offered up prayers to the Father, to him who was able to save him from death. There's Jesus acting as our priest right there. Amen? Believers, the cross was no easy thing. That's what this text is telling us. Brought out loud cries and tears from our great Savior. It caused him deep and severe anguish. Yet, after asking for the cup to pass, remember, Jesus couples that with, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And notice, God heard his cries. We're told that Christ was heard because of his reverence. We also learn that it was God's plan for Christ to go to Calvary, and he went Willingly, He willingly drank from that cup. He endured God's wrath and he did it for us as our great high priest. And notice we're told he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now that's kind of interesting the way that's worded, right? Did Jesus not already know obedience? Well, we're told at the end of, of Hebrews 4 that he was perfect, right? What does it mean he learned obedience? Well, knowing and experiencing are two different things, right? He knew obedience, and he learned it through what he experienced. Jesus not only knows obedience, he experienced it. He took on flesh for us. He was tempted for us, remained sinless, and followed God and acted in accordance with his will up until the very end where he lays his life down at Calvary. Hebrews 5, 9, we're told Jesus was made perfect. That's kind of strange as well, right? What does it mean that he was made perfect? Perfect. Was he not already perfect? Yes. What that phrase means is Jesus was made complete, made perfect through the work that he accomplished during his earthly ministry. Jesus, through the life he lived and the death he died in our place, became our perfect, our complete, our supreme high priest. Jesus meets and exceeds the qualifications of priest because he became one of us to sympathize with us and suffer for us. Lastly, Jesus meets and exceeds the qualifications for priests because Jesus is both our priest and sacrifice for sin. Look at verse 9. He became the source, underline the source, of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Talked about this in the past, but Jesus was a unique priest, right? Because not only did he offer up the perfect sacrifice for sin, he is the perfect sacrifice for sin. Again, we're told in Hebrews 9, 12, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. After living the perfect life for us, after experiencing all of life for us, living it in perfect fellowship with God, perfectly before God, Jesus lays 
his perfect life down in our place after he fulfilled all righteousness Jesus laid his righteous life down and he becomes the source the cause of salvation for all who obey him now don't let that last phrase throw you off where it says for all who obey him He's not talking about salvation by works not talking about things you do to be made right with God. Remember we said in the first part of this book that the author of Hebrews is not talking about the things we do for God. He's talking about faith. Faith is what's in view all throughout the first part of Hebrews. He's talking about what we believe about God and his son. It's in that context that the writer writes, Jesus is the source of eternal salvation for all who obey. In other words... For all who obediently forsake sin and trust in Christ alone for salvation. Did you know that repentance and faith is an act of obedience? I heard an evangelist talk once about salvation, and he said, you know what? God's a gentleman. He doesn't ever command. He just asks, would you please, if it's not too much trouble, turn from your sin. I'm adding a little bit, but it's basically the gist of it. Turn from your sin and, and just accept Jesus. That is not what the, the kind of words that God uses in Scripture. He says, repent and believe. That is a command. And those who are disobedient to that command will be condemned for their disobedience. God doesn't say if it's not too much trouble. He says, as our king, the God of the universe, repent and believe in Jesus. Jesus is the source of eternal salvation for all who obediently forsake their sin and trust in Christ alone for salvation. Jesus has acted as our priest and our sacrifice for sin. He has done it all for us. He has paid it all and through him, through faith alone, him alone, there is eternal redemption, eternal salvation. And apart from him, there is no other way to be saved. Not my words, God's words. You, me, all of us were in need of a priest. And a great priest has been provided. God has provided us with a great priest by sending us his son. So the question I want to leave you here with this morning is this. Are you being obedient to him? Have you obediently turned from your sin, forsaken that sin, and are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? If not, I pray you would this very morning. Let's pray together.